Hi, my name's John Kasher and welcome to Cash Talk, where there'll be no boundaries and a lot of straight talk. All things money, business, and just everyday stuff. Hey, before we get started, just a quick reminder, any advice in this podcast is of a general nature only and has not been tailored to your personal circumstances. So please seek personal financial advice before acting upon this information. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cash Talk. Today, I'm joined by investment specialist and director of Fire Trail, Cole McIntyre. Cole is the investment director at Fire Trail Investments. Fire Trail is an investment management uh, investment management. It's a boutique founded in 2018 and specialises in high conviction investing. Cole's primary responsibility at Fire Trail is providing investment and portfolio insights to professional investors. Kyle is, is an MBA graduate with over 10 years of relevant investments and, and SME experience. Kyle, thank you for joining us today at a very, very topical time um, about investments and equities. Thanks, John. I'm happy to be here. That's it. That's it, mate. Now, Kyle, obviously, um, you know, I, I know a little bit about you um, and obviously your rap sheet talks for itself. Um, but at the moment, you know, you're probably, you know, looking around, it just feels like all the rocks are moving at the moment. You know, we've got interest rates all over the place. We've got, um, you know, inflation talks. We've got China's property market. You know, we've got even BHP coming to a sole listing. We've got, you know, Russia potentially, you know, invading Ukraine. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening. But before we get into the particulars of those items, you know, you, you must love this in a way as well too. So how'd you get into how'd you get into where you are today? Yeah, and why do you love doing what you're doing? Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Spot on, John. I, I absolutely love what we do, and um, you know, it's 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 definitely volatile out there at the moment. But that is very exciting from a stock selection standpoint, and as an active investment manager, you know, it just throws up opportunities. Um, I suppose you know, if I if I think about my history, I, I actually didn't start out in investment management. Um, prior to this, I was in cloud computing. So uh, in a very different industry, um, doing different things, helping governments, schools, uh, large organizations basically get their organization um, onto the cloud. Uh, we had a small um, cloud computing business and um, and we were looking to sell that business. Um, well, we, we were being acquired. So I, I needed to think about what I was going to do next. Um, and during my MBA, I, I'd actually really fallen in love um, with behavioral finance. I, I think an investor's behavior um, can be one of the key determinants of their success, uh, particularly during trying times like we're seeing at the moment and, and periods of volatility. Um, so I, I loved reading, you know, guys like Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky who talk a lot about behavioral finance and how people people make irrational investment decisions. I'm also very competitive. I played a lot of sport uh, going through school, going through university at a, at a competitive level. So I love the fact that this is an industry where you can win um, and, and, and it's highly competitive. You know, if I think about you know how many how many teams are there in the AFL, John? Oh, <laughs> there's many, too too many these days. Too, I've lost track. I think what eighteen many. or something. Yeah, something yeah, like yeah. That. That, that's about right. I, I thought it was uh, eighteen or, or or twenty. Uh, you know, if you think about my sport, um, managing funds. You know, there's over two hundred investment managers here in Australia. So hyper competitive. Everyone's trying to win. Everyone's trying to beat their competitors and and beat the index. And and I absolutely love that sort of high performance environment. So I took that, uh, I took the stuff that I'd, I'd learned uh, through my MBA and and I decided to join Macquarie with the rest of the team and um, who, who started Firetrail. Um, and we all loved working together at Macquarie. We we're doing exactly the same thing as what we're doing here, uh, building high conviction portfolios of our best ideas. And then we decided that we just wanted to do it all together and, and lock ourselves in. We've got a great team, a great culture. And, and the key thing that was missing was that equity partnership, that equity alignment amongst us all. And, and so in 2018, we started started Firetrail. But that's that's a bit of my background. You know, the, the reason I love coming into work every day, number one, it's the people. I work with really smart people, way smarter than me, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I really, really like. Number two, real real high intensity um, that we've got here and, and, and that high performance sort of environment. And number three, you're always being humbled when you're investing, you know, you're always learning. Uh, you're always putting into practice those different disciplines that, that I've learned both through my career and also through my study. 
um, and you're always coming up to new challenges uh, like what we're like what we're seeing in the current market environment. So it's it's a really exciting industry, and and I absolutely love coming into work every day. It's it's a it's great to hear that, and I hear your excitement, and I can hear your passion um, coming across. <laughs> and and for me, and for everyone that knows me, I absolutely love what I do. And I say that in a way, I feel like I'm not even working. To be honest with you, Kyle, it's yes, I get paid for what I do, but you know, getting out of bed and changing people's lives and, and changing their kids' lives and their grandkids' lives forever is is an amazing thing that I do. And and those high five moments where we're able to achieve the goals together, I just you know, is absolutely amazing. So to share you know the platform here today with someone so passionate is very good and uh, i love it one of the things you say kyle is around behavioral you know finance and behavioral investing and then and um, people may think i'm mad but you know if i'm on a if i'm on a beach on fiji in a covid free world and you know i've got my pina colada or whatever's going at the time you know i'm reading behavioral finance and behavioral investing that's how much i love it as well too and i've realized that we can't we can't control the stock market, um, but we can control how we react to it. Okay, yes. and so uh, controlling ourselves, our behaviours, our emotions are very important. And you spoke about this elite team that you work with, and obviously, um, you know, I, I don't even like to put myself anywhere near that. But I felt my most successful investing is where I have my emotions really in check, um, and I'm making logical decisions and. I can relate to obviously the March 2020 period personally for myself. Some of the best investments that I made were that now that we know that was the bottom of the market. Obviously, hindsight's a great thing. But, you know, I remember saying to my wife when I went pulled the triggers on some, some you know, decent size investments personally, I remember the one thing that I did say to her that I feel relatively calm and I feel relatively at peace. Yeah. And with all the chaos that's going around me, um, I've the, the analogy that I had was that trained soldier who's more nervous on the flight over to the front line than when he's actually on the front line. And, you know, that's obviously, I've been in the industry for now, you know, nearly 20 years. Um, mm. You know, I'm 33 as we do this recording. So, you know, I've been more in finance than I've been out of finance. So I'm probably well conditioned. But for the likes of you and your team and emotions and what you practice, you know, how much goes into that? And, and, and obviously, you know, you know, talk, let's, let's talk about, you know, the emotional side of investing and what you guys do to keep that in check. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's funny that you mentioned March 2020 because um, I, I actually remember um, uh, one of our co-lead portfolio managers and, and, and the managing director and founder of Firetrail, Patrick Hodgins. Um, you know, they don't come much more experienced than him. He's been in markets for 35 years, uh, 28 years as, as the head of equities at Macquarie. So really, really experienced guy. And, um, and in March, you know, we're, we're in the thick of it. And you should have seen the smile on, on Patrick Hodgins' face during March 2020, um, you know. And he just said to myself and the rest of the team, you know, you get these opportunities once every seven to 10 years. Uh, to buy businesses like Zero, the cloud accounting platform, at $60 a share, you know, 50% off where it was just a couple of weeks before, um, to buy really high quality businesses at fire sale prices. And he said, you know, you won't see these opportunities forever, but I tell you what, if you don't take advantage of them, they don't come around often enough. So let's get into it. And he was like a kid in a candy store. Um, and so we really turned our portfolio around quite aggressively during that period, you know, buying some really high quality businesses, but also buying businesses that the market thought were down and out, you know, companies like Qantas during the period, you know, Qantas at the height of the pandemic, you know, people were questioning whether or not uh, we'd be flying again. Um, and, you know, since then, you know, Qantas was trading at around $2 a share. Today, it's at $6 a share. So, you know, some really strong opportunities. And the only way you can make those decisions is to be rational, and to focus on the underlying earnings of a business and to focus into the future. You know, at Fytrail, we look out roughly three to five years when we're going to make an investment. We do, um, we have a process where we call it focusing on what matters. So we really look into the future and say, what's going to drive the underlying earnings and the share price of this business over the next three to five years? And then we stay very disciplined on, on valuation as well. So, you know, using something like Qantas as an example, in March 2020, you know, things were dire and people were saying, are we going to travel again? But taking a step back, we actually said, well, 
we've been through periods where people question travel before you know we've been through the gfc when zoom and and video conference calls not zoom in particular but video conferencing was huge and people were saying no one's ever going to travel internationally again and then we saw as things start to open back up everyone started to so the question for us was can Qantas come back from this what does it look like over the next three years and then we really dug into what's going to drive the future profitability for Qantas and something that was really interesting when we actually did the research was that 85% of their earnings come from their domestic business. So from the domestic aviation business and also the Qantas frequent flyer business and less than 15% of their earnings in FY19, a, a record profitability year for Qantas was in the international business. Now, when you can put international travel to one side and really focus on the domestic drivers, things didn't look too bad because we were putting things in place to isolate Australia from the rest of the world. We were putting things in place um, uh, to make sure that Australians could start to travel at least within a domestic bubble. And when you think about the competitive environment in the domestic aviation market, there are only two competitors. There's Qantas and Virgin. So that's actually a really attractive industry structure uh, because you don't have a lot of competition. And Qantas and Virgin were also using this as an opportunity to take costs out of their business and, and really focus on future profitability. So, you know, just to not labor on it, but when we put it all together, we actually thought, well, looking out to FY23, FY24, because of the domestic um, business and because of the rational competitive environment between Qantas and Virgin, we actually believe in FY24 they could have a record profitability year um, driven by the domestic business. The Qantas frequent flyer business was doing fine. Their key customers like Woolworths and some of the, and, um, some of the key um, supermarket chains and some of the key uh, retail chains were actually doing really well. You know, one thing people were buying was things like toilet paper, you know, stocking up, stocking up the fridges, stocking up the houses and, and people were buying a lot of electrical goods. And every time you do that, Qantas makes money from their Qantas frequent flyer program every time you spend a dollar at Woolies, for, as an example. So that business was doing really, really well. And we were able to buy it at a huge discount as well. You know, as I mentioned, trading at close to $2 and, and trading back at $6 today, you know, Qantas still looks cheap today when when we look at it on valuation metrics like a price to earnings ratio or or whatever it is um, but that's just one example of staying rational and actually looking at what's going on in the market right now and saying well this is happening for you this is an opportunity to buy these businesses at a discount let's go and do the work and and see whether there's an investment opportunity over the next few years and Cole, so let's talk about those. So we're talking about obviously even now at the moment, you see the stock market falling. Um, you see your current portfolios obviously being affected. Um, you know, the, uh, prices on these assets are, are decreasing, some at a rapid rate. When we talk about March 2020, it was absolutely at, you know, I hate using the word, but reality, you know, unprecedented, um, you know, rates. Um, today, we're obviously seeing some falls that have happened in the last month. Um, and you know the heart rate starts to to get faster yeah and for i think from my thoughts obviously the difference between the novice and the amateur is that that heartbeat goes a little bit quicker and it's like that mm. trained athlete okay and so maybe what can we what can we and that's really great that conviction but you know when you're looking at those things how are you keeping your emotions in check and maybe does your team practice anything to maybe keep their emotions in check? Because for the people who are novice or the mums and dads or, you know, the average, you know, Joe Blow who's listening to maybe this, sometimes their emotions are getting in the way of making, mm. you know, great decisions like you did with, you know, some of the ones we just talked about. There's a couple of things there, John. You know, number one, everything we do is team-based at Firetrail. And, and so it's not, one investor making all the decisions um, and potentially making an irrational uh, call. Um, and so, you know, we run teams of portfolio managers. We've got a team of 20 here at Firetrail. You know, the analysts are all part of the investment committee and we're all making decisions as a team. Um, and so what that does is it puts a lot of checks and balances in place as a starting point um, when you go to make an investment decision. The second thing is, you know, during periods where things are volatile and, and things are stressful, you know, from a personal level, you find that a lot of the team will increase their uh, amount of um, uh, health practices. So ensuring that they're staying active, ensuring that you're getting your training in and, and just making sure that you're getting those moments so that you can think clearly. And number three, 
we always come back to our process, which is, you know, every company has a price. You know, a lot of the time, these dislocations can be investment opportunities to find companies that are trading at discounts. And number two, let's focus on what matters, which is doing the research, what's going to drive the earnings and the share price into the future. And if you can take that longer term view when you're investing, you know, these periods in markets can actually be great investment opportunities uh, like what you saw during March 2020. You know, that, that, that's it. You know, just stay disciplined, stay focused and really focus on what matters and what's going what's gonna to make a difference to your returns uh, into the future for your investors. So, so one, of the, one of the things you, I hear you saying in the most simplest term is stick to the plan. And, you know, we, we, stick we, to the plan. And we say this all the time and it's sometimes very boring. It's just stick to the plan, you know, stick yeah. to the plan. And, That's, you know, and have, a, and have your investment decisions based on logic and not on emotion because it's emotion that's driving you away from the logical decisions. When everyone knows when you look at a stock and it's 40% off, it's cheaper than it was, you know, before. Um, yeah. It's more logical for you to buy it, you know, but yet, you know, when you're seeing the news and you're reading the newspapers and there's, there's bloodshed on the newspapers, most people are running away. And, you know, as some of the greatest investors of all time have re re repeated over time, and I think it was John D. Rockefeller when it said, you know, when there's bloodshed on the newspapers, it's time to invest. And, you know, when you think about that, you know, we're not talking about people who made, you know, a penny or two. We're talking about the greatest, you know, investors of all time or greatest businessmen of all time, you know, telling us the, you know, secret herbs and spices. Stick to the plan, yeah. get your emotions in check. And you're hearing it once again, everyone, from Kyle as well too and he's team. Stick to the plan, stick to the process. And that's what we believe in to keep your emotions in check. Now, in the, saying the that... Yeah, go, go, go. Well, the other thing I was just going to say there, John, is, you know, in our portfolios, we remain fully invested. I, I see a lot of investors, you know, trying to time going into, into cash and equities. Very, very hard to do, almost impossible to do consistently through time. You know, statistically, in the last 20 years, for you have to, pick, uh, to have picked, you know, the, the selling points and the re-entry points uh, for every major drop over 10% in the last 20 years, you know, your odds are less than one in a billion. So very, very hard to do. But I tell you what we have learned over, you know, running the high conviction fund for the last 16, 17 years, we've learned that if you build a portfolio of your very best ideas and stay invested and think about the long term, you know, that will generate outperformance for you and 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 for your clients. So, you know, that is that is what we always come back to is in your words, stick to the plan for us, stick to the process maintain conviction and 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 just keep going through it it doesn't mean we always get it right you know some years you know aren't as good as others um but what we've found over time you know over a rolling three to five year period is that you know if we do that consistently through time we will be adding value um for for you and your clients so we just stick to it i i agree and 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 mate you know trying to time the market is very very hard to do Okay, extremely hard to do. And, um, you know, and once again, we only have to refer to, you know, some of the greatest investors of all time, you know, warning us about timing the market, you know, you don't need to, it's about staying invested, staying invested for the long term. I think, Kyle, one of the things as well, too, is that when you're entering into the market, not just buying crap as well, too. And I think this yes. is the other thing, it's that we're on the way up, you can buy crap and it's going to look good because, you know, um, Mate, in an upward market, you could, sorry, my French, but, you know, you could throw, you know, shit on the wall and it could turn into gold, yeah? Um, that's not what we want, yeah? We yeah. want to be buying quality assets that we know, regardless of what's going to, going to happen, the entry point is going to remain a good price in the position that we've positioned in. So then if things go down south, well, hang on a second, we're still holding these quality assets and we're not willing to get rid of them. And the, the, the analogy for Australians that's most closest to them is when you buy a house, you don't buy the crappest house in the crappest street. You try and buy the best, you know, the best location. You know, you might not be the best house, but, you know, potential renovate. Well, in stock market, you can't renovate it. So you want to buy the best house in the best location uh, at the cheapest price. And that's, mm. what we're trying to, that's what we're trying to do here so that we're constantly holding quality assets. And even the names that you talked about before, when you talk about Zero, you talk about Qantas, these are not companies that are you know, Joe Blow's tackle shop down the street. You know, we're talking yeah, about right. quality companies 
who are going to withstand a lot of a lot of thunderstorms yeah that could come their way and i and i think you touched on a really important point there focus on the price you pay as well you know going back to your house analogy you know you could have the nicest house in the nicest street you know looking out over the water if you pay a billion dollars for that house <laughs> it's going to be a bad investment i guarantee you it'll be the worst investment that you make so you know focusing on the price is absolutely key as well and and you know when people go to buy a house they do the they do their research they look at what the the quality of the asset they look at what it's worth and no one wants to overpay for anything it's mm -hmm. really funny in investing in shares which are just companies mm -hmm. i see all the time people wanting to pay more and more for businesses and 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 not maintaining that same discipline um that you would when you're going to buy a house you know that's something that i always think about when when we're investing is focus on the price and make sure you're getting you know getting in and at an attractive entry point to give you that margin of safety beautiful well said well said now one of the things that we try not to focus on is a lot of the noise that comes through and obviously i'm a believer that the more noise you consume the more your emotions just drive up but there's a lot of noise at the moment and if you can help me just unpack some of this stuff and maybe what's fire trails view on some of this stuff we can maybe start to create a little bit of uh, clarity for most people and there's a few ones, but I just want to start with obviously one of the ones that isn't news and, and, and not news to many people, and that's around inflation and interest rates. Obviously, um, there's been a lot of money printing happening, a lot of QE um, happening, you know, over the last couple of years. And, you know, even just I think it was this morning, uh, the US Fed kind of come out and said, listen, we're holding for now, but, you know, come next month or come by March, uh, interest rates are going to be uh, increasing. So, um with that said um you know what's the inflation look like interest rates and, and the impacts on equities both locally and maybe abroad yeah for sure I, I mean there's a few things to unpack there you know number one is inflation is real it affects you and i and it affects the price that we pay for goods and services you know when we talk to companies, it gives us a really good gauge of whether or not there's going to be inflation coming through because what you see is that these businesses, um, as a starting point, are purchasing raw materials, goods, um, et cetera, uh, to create products. And and what we saw 18 to 20 months, uh, 24 months ago was that um, the purchasing manufacturers index was going up, which is basically how much companies are paying for raw, raw materials. And so that is a really good lead indicator for inflation starting to come through because when companies are paying more um, for raw materials or more for labor, chances are they're going to want to pass those costs through to the underlying consumer with higher prices for goods and services. Now, if they're not able to do that, then obviously it impacts their their earnings. It impacts their 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 earnings margins, and 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 that'll affect the share price. And what we've seen over the last call it eighteen months is the amount that these companies have been paying has been increasing, and broadly demand's been so strong because of some of the things you were talking about before, John. You know we've had all this stimulus pumped into the system. You know we've we've had all this um, fiscal and monetary um, um, policy that's been expansive and has been helping us. What it's done is it's raised demand for for particularly for goods um and uh you know you look at the amount of tvs people are buying the amount of renovations going on you know people are buying new homes asset prices are high so people are feeling wealthy and so companies have been able to pass that through through to consumers and that's resulted in consumer price uh, the consumer price index going up and inflation coming through now when that starts to happen consistently through time uh, what it actually means is the economy's really starting to get hot. And what you don't want is you don't want inflation to run so high, particularly too high above wage growth, because then people like you and me become worse off. You know, if, if the price of everything is going up seven or eight percent and the price of wages are only going up four or five percent, you know, that's the example that we've we've got live over the last year. You and I are actually three percent worse off, even though wage growth is is actually really strong. Um, and and so inflation is an issue for everyone. It's an issue for investors, and it's an issue for economies. And so central banks want to be able to control inflation and get it down lower, um, so that the price of goods isn't getting out of control and people aren't getting poorer year in year out. You know, you can imagine if inflation was to run at seven percent for the next ten years, everything would be worth double 
what it is today. You know, you'd be paying double for the price of milk, double for petrol, et cetera. Um, and, and that just isn't sustainable. And so one of the policy tools that central banks have to control inflation is to actually start to increase the cost of borrowing um, and, and, and start to increase um, the cost of borrowing for corporates, for governments, and also for, for your home and, and really start to slow down that growth that has caused inflation to get out of control. Now, it's really tricky uh, because um, when you start to change interest rates and when you start to change bond yields, what it actually does is it impacts the valuation of different assets. You know, it impacts the valuation of your home, um, obviously, because the repayments that you're making on your home start to increase as, as, as rates go up. And it also impacts the valuation of things like equities because things like cash, term deposits, et cetera, become more attractive relative uh, to things like equities. So it's all interlinked um, in, in terms of valuation. And so, you know, the the key for a central banker, you know, what they're trying to do right now is to say, okay, well, let's raise rates so that inflation doesn't continue to be out of control. You know, some of these inflationary pressures will roll off as well. You know, we've got supply chain issues, we've got freight issues at the moment. Over time, they will resolve themselves. But let's do it in a way that we're not going to have a massive impact on asset valuations, and we're not going to have a massive impact on demand as well. So it's a real balancing act. And right now, what markets are saying is, is the Fed going to get this balancing act right? You know, are they going to raise rates too quickly? And then people will start to tighten their belt. And so you'll see a fall in demand. Um, but also, if you don't raise rates now, will inflation get out of control? So it's a real tightrope that they're looking to, to walk. Um, and it's impacting asset valuations across different markets. I think as well too, you know, the, the, the equity markets are very good in pricing these things. And yes. you know, I've learned over a long, long time that, you know, what you're seeing today is based on a lead up to this event. You know, it's Correct. not as in, oh my gosh, this is already, you know, going to, you know, this is going to happen in two or three months. Like the Fed talking today, I think there was an interest front, there was an interest a day change of about two and a half percent on the S&P 500 just alone, yeah, and just to understand yeah. how things react as quickly. But this news about inflation and about interest rates is no no news. Well, definitely not to people like us as anyway. Um, you know, we talk about this this sheer level of money printing is 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 huge. Um, but the balancing act that Cole's talking about, and it's around, you know, are they going to get it right? And markets don't like uncertainty. Markets like certainty. It's all about how certain things happen. And usually if they're certain, you will see, you know, green on your screens. You know, if you see uncertainty, you will see, you know, red on your screens. But once again, this is where opportunities are presented because it's this whole greed and fear factor and these emotions of these people transacting on these stock markets that are creating opportunities. And I think you've the hit, other one... That, hit the nail. Oh, sorry. No, you go. There you go. go. No, no, I was going to say, you've hit, the, you've hit the nail on the head, John. It's you know, expectations are key when you're investing. And so, you know, right now, to your point, the market is expecting um, the Fed to raise rates three, potentially four times um, over the next year. Um, and that's being priced in right now into the market. So the fact that they're going to do it is already priced into the market. The, the key question is, are they going to do it faster or slower than what the market expects? And the, and the market will react to that. You know, it's the same when you're valuing a company or, or doing work on a company. If a company says earnings growth is going to be 10% next year and they come in and, deliver, and deliver 8%, you know, that's a 20% downgrade to where the expectations were and the share price would fall on the back of that. So you've hit the nail on the head. Expectations are absolutely key when you're investing. And, and you know, right now what the Fed is navigating is expectations, which is why their communication is so key when they're talking to the market about these different things. And, and, and I think to put this even in greater perspective, if you think about some of the greatest like uh, short-term crashes that we've seen on the market, it's because of high levels of unexpectedity. And you have to look at like the September 11 terrorist attack, have a look at yes. what happened to the stock market when they heard about two planes going into you know the World Trade Centers and obviously then the Pentagon and whatnot. Markets, you know, plummeted. It's the market doesn't like it uncertainty and obviously when yeah. we talk about the whole march 2020 and that deep dive that happened or if you look at it, it kind of looks like a brick wall it's you know unexpected no one expected governments to start just locking down places yeah and literally locking down economies so 
Um, but I think the inflation and interest rate kind of uh, situation that we find ourselves in is more of an expected one. Um, yes. But once again, what we're seeing at the moment is a lot of this already kind of um, into the markets as well. One of the ones that isn't so popular, maybe domestically speaking, but maybe is one that's of interest to me and a lot of talk that I have is around the Chinese property market issues. Um, obviously, there was the, there's a lot of uh, talk about the Evergrande, but um, you know, there's other major property developers and, um, that are having issues. And, and I was reading this morning that just so people can put this in perspective, um, there's the amount of empty buildings that are built by these developers is about 27 times the amount of New York City. So mm. there was ranges, and I hate talking about it because I, I, I feel like the information is incorrect, okay? But, you know, we were talking about some debt levels into the 100, and I think it was like 116 trillion, one of these guys was saying, which was like ridiculous levels. If you guys think about that, that's like... 10 times more than some countries that are out there in regards to how much we're talking in regards to debt. And, you know, we're talking about there's a lot of speculation. And I think when it comes to China alone, the information that's coming out of the country is very sketchy um, to, say, to say. But, you know, talking about the Chinese issue in regards to the property issue and just obviously the economy overall, because, you know, the weight that she has on the local economy and then international economies, what's What's Firetrail's view on this and, and how do you see this, you know, potentially playing out? Yeah, for sure. Well, John, uh, prior to the pandemic, we'd get out to China every quarter um, because to your point, you know, you want to see what's actually going on. And, and you know, one of the things um, that sticks in my mind is is just seeing these photos of these empty cities. You're talking about, you know, these um, these cities just waiting for people to to move in um and and they're sort of ghost towns uh, as as you go through them i suppose to put that into context though you've got to think about the sheer volume that we're dealing with you're dealing with such a large population who's starting to urbanize that without planning this beforehand and building these cities beforehand um it would actually be very very hard for them to transition their their economy from a rural based economy they're they're obviously going through a period of urbanization and so you know a, a lot of it is 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 planning but you know, to, to your point, things have slowed down um, in, in China. We estimate, you know, the Chinese economy, um, roughly 70% of their economy is linked to their property market. So it is huge. Like when you look at the second and third derivatives, you know, you, you're talking massive um, exposure uh, to property in the Chinese market. And, and so as a result of that, uh, I don't believe you're going to, I don't believe Chi and 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 their government would allow a hard landing um, for the Chinese property market. And so, let me give you a, a really interesting um, snippet uh, from from overnight. Um, there was a sale of one hundred and eighty million dollars worth of land of government um, land in China um, that was actually uh, used to pay down debt, and it was actually bought by state-owned enterprises. So basically, the government has land, and they're selling it to government. Um, entities. And so what you can see is that China's actually doing what they can to create some sort of soft landing for the property market. They don't want it to be as hot as what it is now. And they're happy for things to slow down, which is what you're seeing. Um, but I don't think they're going to let it get out of control. And, you know, you think about Evergrande, which got very close to the edge then. Um, and you think about some of the other property developers that have been helped by the, the the Chinese government. We're also hearing on the ground that the Chinese uh, government has asked financial institutions to ease the lending standards a little bit to, to take pressure off. And, and so, you know, I, I think they're going to navigate this period, um, or, albeit, you know, you, you will see a bit of a gradual slowdown. Things that I find really interesting uh, going on in China right now is how they're going to manage uh, this COVID zero scenario and, and, and when they're going to open their country back up um, uh, to the rest of the world. You know, that is going to be something that's really interesting to see, considering, you know, just next week, uh, you've got Chinese New Year um, happening. You know, it's going to be very interesting to see whether or not they're going to be able to continue with this COVID zero path that they're on. You've also got um, the Winter Olympic Games uh, in the next couple of weeks as well. Um, in China, um, which which will be interesting to see 
as well. But in, in terms of in terms of property and, and the property exposure there, you know, our house view at the moment is that things are slowing down, but there are policy um, tools in place to to make it a softer landing than than what the market's currently uh, viewing right now. And 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 I think you will see them pull the stimulus levers and and the policy levers that they've used in the past to to help them sort of navigate this sort of period. So overall, if I think about our portfolio's exposure, we don't have a lot of direct exposure to China. We've got some indirect exposure with some some copper uh, companies and and the like. Uh, we do have a little bit of bulks with things like um, BHP. Um, but but overall, you know, we don't think it's going to be a crash landing for China. It's an interesting one. It's obviously just such a large economy. And it's just, you know, when we talk about That's that and we talk huge. about the US, it's just, you know, when we talk about direct and indirect, it's just like, is everything just indirect? It's just that big. So um, yeah, Australia's you know, exposure in particular is massive to China, obviously, uh, given commodities and energy and, and that sort of thing is such a big part of our market. That's it. And the, the biggest thing is as well, too, for everyone who's viewing and, and, and listening is just, you know, we, we obviously don't know. No one's got a crystal ball. It's just looking at the actual indicators, looking exactly what's going on in the economy. And, you know, like Kyle was saying, you know, what actual things are actually happening, not skeptics, you know, you know, speculating on whatever, you know, that Chinese buy of that sale and buy of that land is actually happening. It's not, you know, this is where we want things to, to, to be based on. So I think the other one as well too is just um, just to touch on is obviously this whole Russian potential invasion happening and, and yeah. like pandemics, no one likes wars. Um, you know, they're, they're pretty frightening stuff. Um, you know, US yeah. has started to send over supplies and, you know, they're talking about training drills on the border and stuff like that. I see oil prices have already kind of started to rise as well too, which is usually the case. Um, mm. You know, hearing about potential war puts shivers in anyone's, um, you know, in, down anyone's spine. No one wants to be in wars. Um, you know, potential ramifications, what are you guys hearing on the ground and, and, and mm. whatnot? I think the key thing from an investment standpoint is is just thinking about the implications of sanctions coming from the US uh, onto Russia. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how Europe reacts to those sanctions. So, so right now, Europe has a problem um, in that um, gas is very expensive and, and energy in general in, in Europe is very expensive at the moment. They're actually very short on... <laughs> On, on gas at the moment, uh, which is which is something that they need. And so any sort of sanctions from the US, and this is what energy markets are reacting to, you know, oil and gas markets, um, you know, that will uh, limit supply uh, of oil and gas uh, into into the, the broader economy. Um, and so, you know, Russia, you know, they're not a massive player, but, you know, they'd be five to 10% um of of global energy supply um you know just in terms of um when you think about 100 million barrels a day is, is generally um global supply uh so you know they're big enough to make a difference and and any sort of sanctions on on russia will have an impact on those commodity prices and and energy prices so i think you've seen a little bit of that uh in the last few days the oil price reacting to that in terms of uh, Australia, you know, we've got some great exposures to that, um, uh, to, to particularly to gas um, in our market with Santos. You know, Santos, now that they've bought Oil Search, top 20 player, uh, they would obviously benefit uh, and have been benefiting from, from higher energy prices over the last 12 months. So, you know, we think about that in terms of our exposure. We've already got energy exposure within our portfolio, so been benef benefiting from our thesis that you are going to see globally higher energy prices as a result of the lack of supply due to years of underinvestment in, in both oil and gas projects. Um, you know, albeit at the same time, we're actually overweight um, EV materials, so electric vehicle materials as well. But I think you're going to see a bit of a bit of a cycle for both new energy materials and old energy materials as we try to navigate this uh, transition. But short term, short term uh, issues uh, for energy markets, if you see sanctions on 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 Russia uh, from the US. Do, do you feel like when we're talking about this whole oil and stuff, and we everyone knows that at one point in time everyone wants to go to clean energy and we want to kind of get away from our oils and stuff. Do you do you yes. find that 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 short term yes is going to be you know this spike in this demand because they just need it now? But 
you know, once again, this probably emphasizes, especially for like the likes of Europe and whatnot, that they just can't rely on these energy sources, that they need to be going to clean energy and they need to be moving to, you know, diversify their, their energy sources because, um, yeah, there's always going to be there's always going to be problems wherever there's people. There's going to be confrontation. I think you lost the light. Um, yeah, I right. wasn't moving around enough, John. I've got to use my <laughs> hands more. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah. So just around like energy, obviously, you know, we're talking about energy in particular, obviously around gas and oil and stuff like that. But obviously, the clean energy side as well too. If you, hmm. Do you think that 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 as well too is going to you know the governments they've already committed to going down that side, but obviously short term it's like well, let's just let's just power these countries, but it must go into the heads of, you know, we've got to expand in these in these alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, to be honest, we're, we're, we're bullish on old energy and new energy. So I'll, I'll touch on new energy first and, and then we can um, cycle mm -hmm. into old energy as well. Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of new energy exposure, you know, you just look at the demand forecasts for any sort of new energy materials. You know, let's take... Um, Linus, um, which specializes in rare earth materials. Now, rare earth materials are used in things like magnets, which are used in batteries, also used in things like wind turbines. Um, one of the key inputs uh, into that and, and, and probably the most important exposure um, for Aussie companies like Linus is, is a, a material called NDPR um, and, and again, used in magnets. So you can't create an electric vehicle without magnets. You need these rare earths. And they're such a small part of the overall cost of building a wind turbine or, or building an electric vehicle. Um, but the demand for these materials is so high that you've actually seen NDPR prices, you know, move, you know, bottom left to top right. You know, you're sitting at around $130 a kilo uh, today and you're talking sort of 3x where it was two years ago. Um, so what's driving that is huge demand um for for these uh new energy materials and in australia we're really lucky that you can get some really high quality exposure to companies that are producing these assets right now today so linus is one that i mentioned before you know you think about ex um rare earth materials globally 80 to 90 percent actually come out of china and so linus is actually one of the only major um producers and suppliers of rare earth materials outside of china and so countries like japan countries like the us are paying a premium to have security of these new energy materials that are going to be so important for the energy transition then you've got boring stuff like copper you know copper is used in the electrification of, of everything now you're not talking 3x demand in the next 10 years like something like rare earths but you are talking about 30 percent increase in demand for, for things like copper over the next 10 years and where it becomes really interesting is on the supply side because supply of copper is getting harder and harder to to come by and so as you open up that gap between demand and supply the thing that needs to move is the price um, in, in order to incentivize new mines to come on board and, and new exploration, et cetera. So that's a bit on, on, on new energy. It's going to be massive. You know, you know, the whole world needs to transition uh, to a new energy economy, and you're definitely going to see that over the next 30 years. Um, so we're very bullish on that. Um, but we're also bullish on the medium-term outlook uh, for old energy. Now, this is something um, that we've done a lot of work on. Um, and one of the things I find really interesting is going back to that 100 million barrels a day of, of, of supply and demand um, in normal markets, you know, 100 million barrels a day in terms of demand is, is, is what you'd expect for global um, energy demand. What you actually see is when you go out to 2030, it doesn't really change. It actually stays flat. So when you look at the underlying components things do change around 20 percent of that demand is is automobiles and obviously with new electric vehicles coming on board that starts to tail off but then you've got things that are harder to replace so you've got jet fuel which is obviously hard to replace uh you've got things like shipping um uh very very hard uh to replace there you know i, I suppose maybe nuclear could be a potential alternative but there's not really any alternative right now um, in terms of those fuels. And then you've got things that you and I use every day, you know, things like oil are used um, in chemicals. Um, so things like fertilizer used for agriculture, et cetera, they're using plastics, you know, the, the inputs are massive um, for, for oil and, and gas is obviously predominantly used for, for, for energy. 
and so when you when you when you put it all together demand is, is broadly saying flat over the next decade but where things get really interesting is in supply because energy markets have been underinvested in uh, for the last seven years. You know, 2014 was the peak and global oil and gas capex has fallen by around 60% since then. Now, really interesting fact about an oil well, it's all about using pressure. So you push water down into an oil well, you get oil that comes back up. So you need constant capex, maintenance capex and operational capex in order to keep that pressure and to keep that energy going. And if you don't continue to invest in an oil well, that well will deplete by around five to seven percent per annum and so because you've had this period of massive underinvestment in oil and gas projects globally no exploration no one wants to look for oil because you know the high cost projects 20 years and you've got this energy transition going on but people have been under investing in maintenance capex what you're seeing right now is a shortage um, of, of uh, oil and gas to meet current and future demand right now and that's why you've seen energy prices at elevated levels. And, and I do believe over the next seven or so years, you're going to see higher energy prices in oil and gas markets as a result of these supply demand dynamics. And again, you know, to put it into context for, for a company, you know, before it was taken over oil search, uh, every $5 move in, in the price of oil, uh, because uh, because gas is, is is linked to the oil price, every five dollar increase in the, in the price of uh, oil would result in a hundred million dollars free cash flow to oil search. And you've seen the oil price go from forty dollars eighteen months ago to ninety dollars today. So we're talking seven hundred mil in free cash flow for that business. Um, and so you know you you can get some good exposures in this energy transition. To your point before, these big changes. This uncertainty creates opportunities and you can actually maximize those opportunities on both sides of the coin as an investor, um, looking for those new energy opportunities, acknowledging that the world needs to move, um, but also, you know, benefiting in terms of, you know, the massive opportunity in, in old energy at the moment. And, and so, you know, we'd be playing that through something like a Santos right now in our current portfolio. Very, very interesting. Very, very interesting and great to see how things impacting on very on very different ways. And obviously the new energy and old energy and, and, and all of these um, particular parts now. And what a great country Australia is to have exposure across the spectrum as well. Really lucky. It is. It is. And we're, we're, we're a very good country um, in regards to, you know, how diverse we are and, and obviously what we've got in our, our, our arsenal um, from businesses, both, you know, from a goods and from a services base. Um, you know, we're mm. talking about earlier on about, you know, um, some of the companies like Qantas and whatnot. And, and obviously now we're talking about even around, you know, Santos and, and whatnot. So it's a very, very good country. And uh, they call it the lucky country for maybe for multiple reasons. But Cole, Let's now just kind of circle back and we're talking about just like 2022 and, and, and your feeling around this. Maybe just, you know, just your general feeling about, you know, what 2022 kind of uh, feels like, you know, what fire trail are kind of anticipating is in regards to, um, you know, what they're, what they're anticipating in their investment decisions. Are they, you know, being very cautious? Do they think that volatility is going to continue to be around? And um, yeah, just, just what 2022 looks like, just trying to keep it short term. Yep, for sure. So a couple of key risks. Number one, you know, you've mentioned the biggest risk, which is inflation and the Fed having a misstep. You know, very hard to predict that. Almost impossible because I don't have a direct line to Jay Powell. I, I don't think he'd tell me even if I did. Um, but, you know, that to me is the biggest risk for growth assets and 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 um, and alternative sort of assets. And, and so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I don't actually think there needs to be a scenario where there's a where there's a market sell-off as a result of rising rates. I actually think what you can see is more of a rotation in equity markets towards um, companies that are that have been traditionally undervalued um, and and reopening sort of um, companies that are exposed to reopening economies and away from really high valuation, low profitability businesses. You've already seen a lot of that happening at the moment. Uh, you spoke to quality uh, businesses before, you know, these companies that have very high valuations, but very low to no profitability, you know, uh, are sort of falling into that higher risk bucket for me at the moment. You know, I think businesses that have proven earnings, you know, high quality earnings right now, you know, you know, those businesses should be able to navigate 
this sort of period. And then there's a big opportunity, I believe, in companies that are going to benefit from economies reopening. Now, you've already seen demand for goods has been very elevated. What you haven't seen so far is demand for services start to come back. And so potentially you see a bit of a rotation in the market away from companies selling goods, um, exposed to inflation, higher wages, et cetera, because you might see some earnings pressure coming through. Um, but companies exposed to services where you can see demand coming back strongly could be in a very good position uh, over the next 12 to 24 months. Um, the other thing I, I, I think um, will play out is I think this is going to be a stock pickers market. You know, stock pickers like Firetrail, you know, like some of the other investment managers you talk to, markets don't like uncertainty and volatility, but stock pickers love it because it just creates great opportunities to buy companies that we've been looking at um, at material discounts. So, you know, we've been very active in the portfolio over the last 12 months. We feel like we've got the right sort of positioning for the current sort of environment. Um, you know, markets could be up or down over the next 12 months. I can't look into a crystal ball and, and give you that answer. But I think, you know, there's enough in expectations that we can get through uh, this current period. But right now we are seeing some really compelling investment opportunities. I've mentioned a couple of them before, um, but happy to sort of dig into what we're seeing, both in companies that are domestically focused and exposed, but also companies that are taking market share off, off offshore as well. Aussie companies, you know, with, with offshore exposure, you know, finding big opportunities in big markets like the US, et cetera. And I think the biggest thing is, Kyle, is that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And what we've tried to talk about here is about, you know, emotions and making sure you keep yourself in check, sticking to the plan. There's a hell of a lot of noise, but in all noise, there's opportunities as well, okay? And yeah. trying to cut through that noise and find those opportunities is where successful investors continue to, to play. And so... Controlling the emotions, sticking to the plan, looking for the opportunities as they present themselves um, is very, very important. Kyle, it's been an absolute pleasure for you to jump on today. I really appreciate your time. Um, for everyone who's watching or viewing, please, all of the information that we've told you today is of a general nature. Please do not go out there and, and, and execute these on your own. Um, seek professional financial advice um, before acting on any of this as well. But Kyle... Thanks, mate, for jumping on. I really appreciate your time and thank you very much for your insights. Thanks, John. Good to speak to you.